Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Well, I want you to think for a second about one of your favorite stories. I mean, it can be a fairy tale Uh, It can be a short story, maybe one that you read when you were in school. Maybe even it's just a story that your parents or grandparents told and it just stuck with you and you just love that story. Like maybe during the holiday season when you get together with family, hey, tell that story, that's a great story. Uh, A few things that great stories usually have in common are these these few things. They're going to have memorable characters. Uh, it's going to have tension usually in the story, like a problem or an issue that needed to be solved or had to be faced. Uh, and then it's also going to have some action to it. There's going to be movement in the story to keep you engaged. Uh, well, today, the story that we're going to talk about has all of these things, and it happens to be a true story. So we are in the final week of our series called Metaphors. And this week is going to be a little bit different, and I'll explain why in just a second. Uh, But quickly, a metaphor, as we know, is simply trying to compare two things uh, or explain something by comparing it to something else. And so we've been going through, this is now the fourth metaphor from the Gospels, the story about Jesus. um, And we're looking at uh, the metaphor to understand something that he said or did. Now, today's metaphor is a metaphor of a roof, a roof. Now, I will say we are taking a bit more liberty on this metaphor. It's not a teaching of Jesus or a parable of Jesus. It's really about an event that happened that he was involved in. And the metaphor is not really one that's there on, in the story, but we're going to pull one from it to sort of bring home, drive home the main point that we're getting at today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5 and looking at a pretty, pretty famous story from the life of Jesus. As we get into it, you'll probably be like, oh, I know that, I know that story. I've heard that story. And if you haven't, it's a good one. So it'll be really, uh, really awesome for you to maybe hear this one for the first time or for the first time in a long time. So again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5. We're going to introduce ourselves at first, just the first one verse of the story to kind of introduce the story, the setting, the characters, and then we'll just jump off from there and see how this metaphor of a roof plays an important role in our lives. So Luke chapter 5, we're going to be starting at verse number 17, and here's what it says. One day, while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem, and the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. So we're, the setting here, it, it, early, we'll read about this, well, we've read about it earlier. This is actually in a small little town called Capernaum. Because it says that these religious leaders came from all over the region, even as far as Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And they've come to this small little town of Capernaum, which is actually Peter's hometown, one of the disciples of Jesus, Peter. It's his hometown. And scholars tell us uh, 
that there's kind of an assumption made here. It's very possible that the setting of this account is actually in Peter's home in Capernaum. So Jesus is here teaching in this house. It is packed. The crowd has packed in, standing room only. The Pharisees, the religious elites, the religious leaders are there as well. And so these are some of the characters. First, we have the crowd. Wherever Jesus was, there was always a crowd. They always were following Jesus, trying to see what he's going to do next, trying to be there so they can tell their kids and grandkids, hey, I was there when Jesus did this. And then the other character or set of characters is the Pharisees, the religious elites. They also, as we see here, always followed Jesus everywhere he went, not to really be impressed by what he was doing, but to catch him doing something wrong. Because Jesus has claimed he's the Messiah. He's even said things to maybe say he's divine, he is God. And so they're trying to catch him in the act. They've heard things and they've sensed things, but they, they're there to see him slip up. They're there to see him. They're, try to, they're trying to discredit him. They're trying to basically end his career as a teacher, as a rabbi, by saying, yeah, he's false, he's phony, because the real Messiah wouldn't say that or do that, okay? So that's the first two characters. And then obviously, we have Jesus in this story. Obviously, because the whole book of Luke is about Jesus, so he's going to be in this story. And as it says here, he's teaching and also healing, Now, I want to cover a topic that is a little bit deep here at the outset, and it's something that on our Wednesday night study we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and it seems like it doesn't fit, but it does, and I want to show show us why. So there's kind of this fancy theological term about Jesus that I want to point out for just a minute, and that it's called the hypostatic union. A hypostatic union. This is the idea where Jesus within him had two complete natures. He had a human nature. He was fully human. He also possessed a fully divine nature. He was fully God. So you may have heard this term, Jesus was fully God and fully man. This term, hypostatic union, is how we explain this term. Now, here's why I mention that. Because Luke here, in this verse, verse 17, says, the Lord's healing power was strong with Jesus. So, Jesus, was he divine? Yes. Colossians 2 verse 9 says that in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the deity, all the all fullness of deity. And Philippians 2 verse 7 says that Jesus emptied himself. And so we put these two ideas together. So what we're saying is Jesus possessed all the eternal powers of God. He is fully divine, yet he restrained himself from using those powers he possessed for his own gain or for any advantage. Now, why is this important? It's important for two reasons. First, if Jesus did not have a fully divine nature, then we would simply be worshiping a man. If you don't if you don't assert this view that Jesus was and is divine, then the whole worship of him is idolatry by definition, which is kind of one of the top no-nos, you know, that God said a long time ago. No other gods before him. Now, if, however, Jesus had not restrained himself from making use of his powers of deity, then he could not be an example that we can actually follow. It would be sort of cheating. So the reason I mention that 
is because Luke says the Lord's healing power was strongly upon Jesus for whatever reason on this particular day. And we'll talk about the story we're going to talk about is a healing, and then we'll reference what happened just before this story, another amazing healing. So again, was Jesus divine? Yes, but this healing power says it was the Lord's power upon him. So when we look at the stories of Jesus healing and performing miracles, can I just tell you something that may blow your mind? You and I have access to the same power that Jesus had to do miracles and see healings like Jesus did. You may not believe that. You may not have ever thought about that, but it's absolutely true. The Lord's healing power was strongly upon Jesus. He wasn't tapping into some reserve tank that made it unfair that we can't do that. Jesus even told his disciples, hey, after I'm gone, you guys will do greater things than I did. Why? How is that possible? We're not divine. I'm not divine. No one is, right, except for Jesus. But the point is, that same power is available to us. So when it comes to healing, we can pray and believe and seek healing. That, That power is not within us, but the same power can come upon us um, as the Lord desires and directs. I know that's a little bit much maybe at the top, so now let's get into the actual meat of the story. Let's look at two other characters or two other sets of characters that are really crucial to this specific story, okay? So uh, Luke 5 verse 18, let's move on. It says this, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Do you recognize this story now? You probably do. So we see two other characters here. First, we have a paralyzed man. So this this is important to understand sort of his life, to kind of take put ourselves in his position for just a moment. So this, this man had a lot going against him. You think, well, yeah, he's paralyzed, but that means so many other things that we may not consider because we just read about him for two verses here, okay? So society in general is not going to take care of him like we would now. So someone who's paralyzed or has another, you know, disability or or issue like that, there's government programs, government assistance, special parking, special programs, all sorts of of ways to help make life easier for people with an issue, you know, like a paralyzed person now. He didn't have any of that. The government did not take care of people at all like we do now, okay? So it's a totally different scenario. In fact, this man would have been dirt poor. More than likely, he would have begged for a living. We know in a couple accounts, so in Matthew 20, we read this story of a blind man uh, who knows that Jesus is is coming down where he he is. He's, He's out begging. And instead of begging for money from Jesus, he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. He asks, he begs for healing from Jesus. That, that's what he did for a living. That's all he could do. And then in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are on their way to worship at the temple, and there's a paralyzed man who it says was, was dropped off by some friends, probably like the same kinds of friends this guy had, 
dropped off every day in front of this gate to beg for money. That was the only source of income. Their only way of survival is to beg. They're going to be poor. And as we've already sort of surmised here, he's going to be completely reliant upon everyone else for everything. So most people are going to see him as a nuisance. They're going to see him as a bother. They're going to look down upon him. They're going to try to ignore him. Like, I don't see you. You don't see me, you know. That's how he's looked at in general by society. And then maybe the most crushing part is religiously, he would typically be seen as a sinner who's being punished by God. That's why he's paralyzed. And we even see this in John chapter 9. There's another story of another blind man that Jesus encounters. And even his own disciples, they say, and Jesus heals the blind man. Spoiler alert in John 9. If you're reading John 9, I'll tell you the ending. Okay, he's healed. But before Jesus heals him, his disciples say, Jesus, who has sinned, this man or his parents? So for whatever reason, the common religious view of the day is if you had a disability or an ailment or an issue, a physical issue, it would have been seen by a majority of people as judgment from God for your sin. Now, in the case of the blind man in John 9, Jesus says, guys, that's not how this works at all. That's not how God does things. He says this man, and what he says is even weirder, I think. He says, this man was born this way so that God could be glorified through him. Then he heals him, okay? So that's what this man, this paralyzed man, has going against him. The government doesn't assist him in any way. He has to beg to barely scrape by for a living. He's reliant upon everyone else to take care of him and provide for him. And religiously, he's seen as someone who's judged. He must be a terrible sinner, or his parents were terrible sinners. That's how he is seen. Pretty tragic. But luckily, this man has some really good friends. And in another account of this story from a different gospel, we read that he has four friends, and they are awesome. And they take their friend to Jesus. Now, a question might be, well, why? Well, what we read right before this account, when it, remember Luke said the healing power of the Lord was strongly upon Jesus, okay? So right before this, Jesus has just healed someone with leprosy. It's a, skin, it's a skin disease. And there's no cure. You just have it, and you live outside of society because it can spread. So you live in, it, it's literally called a leper colony outside of the main you know, walls and gates of major cities. And you just live out there, and it's miserable, and it's terrible, and you die. That's it. And Jesus heals this person of leprosy. There's only one other account. Uh, that I've ever known of, ever read in the Bible before Jesus. There's only one time in the Old Testament where someone was healed from leprosy. There was a miracle. It had to be a miracle. There's no salve you can put on your skin. There's no ointment. There's no medicine. There's no cure. You're, it's a death sentence. And Jesus has just healed this man with leprosy. So I would imagine, again, Capernaum, small town, if you're from a small town like I am, you know in a small town, everybody knows everybody else's business. Word gets around fast. There are, it's hard to keep a secret in a small town. So I'm guessing that one of these guys or these guys maybe were there to see this or they heard about it and they're like, we got to get our friend to Jesus. I know he's probably out begging, you know, over here on this corner. We're going to get him and bring him here and just see what Jesus can do. 
So what's, what I love about, about this, these friends is they didn't see their paralyzed friend as a burden. They didn't see him as an inconvenience or as a bother. He had some great friends around him, and they made it their mission to get him to Jesus. So they get him, and they get, get him to the door, and they run into a problem. They can't get in the room. They can't get in the house. It's stuffed, standing room only. People aren't going to move and let him in. They've got their own needs. They don't want to miss any of the action, you know, so they're not going to move out of the way and get outside where they can't see or hear to let these guys in. They should have gotten here earlier, right? So the question is, let me ask you this. What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you're out of options? You know, there's a phrase that necessity is the mother of invention. I believe that's what these guys showed here in this story. Because, and maybe you've heard of this before. Maybe you've heard of this guy. His name is MacGyver, okay? So MacGyver, it's an old TV show. You know, they, have, they reboot it recently. But the issue with MacGyver, the thing he's really known for, is he can, like, basically diffuse a bomb with a toothpick and a lollipop stick, you know? Like, he can make a bomb out of a piece of tin foil and a rope. I mean, he, he can just, make, you know, make whatever and get out of any jam. He can pick a lock with his fingernail. I mean, it's just, he's ridiculous, right? So these guys are like the first century MacGyvers here because their issue is they can't get in to the building. So what do they do? They climb up on top of the house and start to tear apart the roof. That's where the metaphor is going to come into play here for us this weekend. The idea of a roof. They are ripping apart the roof, tearing off the tiles to get their friend to Jesus. So let me ask you, who is that one person that you need to get to Jesus? Second question is, what are you willing to do to get them there? Who is that person you need to get to Jesus, and what are you willing to do to get them there? Think about this scene for a second. Put yourself now in, in the crowd, in this house. All of a sudden, you hear this commotion up top, and you're like, what? What is going on? What is that noise up there? And then you start having some debris fall on. You're like, what? What is going on? And then you, it gets really bright because now there's a big hole in the roof. Okay, you put yourself in that. I'm guessing if this was Peter's house and he's there, he's probably thinking, my roof, what is going, what are you doing to my roof? You know, maybe he's freaking out just a little bit. But let me ask you this, that, that's probably what the crowd was thinking. But do you think that these friends cared at all what the crowd was thinking about their method? I don't think so. Because they were desperate to get their friend to Jesus. They, would take, they, would, they wouldn't take no for an answer. They wouldn't let any obstacle stand in their way. Even if it meant destroying this guy's roof of his house, we're going to do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus. So again, I ask you, who is that person that you need to get to Jesus? And what are you willing to do to get them there? Are you willing to look weird? Are you willing to be laughed at by others? Are you willing to be rejected by people? Are you willing to make a mess? Like taking the roof, tiles off the roof is making a mess. Making a hole big enough to put a person on a mat, that's going to make a mess. Are you willing to make a mess? Are you willing to maybe try and fail? Maybe you try a method to get someone to Jesus and it doesn't quite work out the way you thought. Are you willing to take that risk? 
these men chose to do whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. Now let's move on in the rest of the story. We'll go verse by verse through the rest of the story for just a few minutes and then bring home this application before we close today. So pick it up at the end of verse 19 here. It says this, Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Verse 20, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven. Two things I want to point out here in this verse before we move on. First, whose faith did Jesus see and recognize? Not the man's faith on the mat, his friend's faith. It's like Jesus was looking up at these guys, lowering the friend down, and they know immediately what what they've done. He knows immediately what they've done. He knows, yeah, they've heard about what's going on. They believe I can do what no one else can do. And he says, good job, guys. He honors their faith. He recognizes their faith. And then... He forgives the paralyzed man's sins. This is odd, and we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But let's go back to what we've already talked about, this idea of the hypostatic union. This is a case in which only the divine nature of Jesus can say and do such a thing. Your sins are forgiven. And this is what gets the religious leaders, the Pharisees who were there, this gets their attention. And I think Jesus probably did this on purpose because he just wants to mess with them a little bit, okay? He wants to teach them a lesson while he does a miracle here in front of this whole crowd. Because then the next verse, the next two verses are the Pharisees' reaction. Verse 21, but the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. So the Pharisees think, we got him now, boys. We caught him in the act. We have him on tape. Well, there's no tape player or tape recorder, but we've got him. You know, we're chiseling maybe, you know, chiseling his words. we got the stenographer over in the corner. We've got him. He claimed to forgive someone's sins. Only God can do that. And they're probably thinking, how could he be so careless? He knows we're here. We're in the front row. He knows we're always around trying to trap him and catch him doing something wrong or bad or sinful right? How could he be so careless? Bingo, we got him. But what does Jesus say? Verse 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Then he asked them this, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? Let me ask you that question. Is it easier, is it easier for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk to a paralyzed man. Obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because there's no proof required. There's no way anyone would know anything about what's going on internally in that person. But if you say to a paralyzed person, get up and walk, there better be some getting up and walking going on. There better be some proof. If you're going to say that in front of this huge crowd, including these religious elites, that person better get up or your credibility is absolutely out the window. So obviously this is, this is the point Jesus is making. Now we get to the good part of the story. Pick it up at verse 24. So Jesus says, I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, 
picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, We have seen amazing things today. So here's where we get to the main point of this story, the main application. The rest of this pretty much is going to be how we apply this metaphor of this roof to our lives. We've already hinted at it, but we're going to really bring it home here for the next few minutes. The point of this story is getting people to Jesus is all about letting him do whatever he wants to do in them and for them because Jesus can do anything in them and for them. The idea here is that Jesus knows our needs better than we do. And even the person that you maybe are thinking about getting to Jesus, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, that person that you may have on your mind or maybe even this week have had on your heart not knowing why, maybe this message is confirmation of why, that person, you may think you know what their needs are, and they may think they know what their needs are. And everyone looking at them may obviously know what their needs are, but Jesus knows even more than you do or they do or anyone does. And more importantly, as we see here, he can do anything. That's why it's important that we do all we can to get people to Jesus, for him to do the work that needs to be done and do the work that only he can do. Remember, the first thing that Jesus does is forgive the man's sins. That's clearly not his issue, is it? That's obviously not why his friends have lowered him down. They didn't bring him to Jesus because they said, yeah, this is a terrible sinner, Jesus. Would you forgive him? That's not what happened. That's not why they brought him, but that's what happened. Jesus says first, he gets to the heart of the matter. Basically, it comes down to what does it matter if you can walk if you if if have sin, right? Why, why does that? Who cares? And so he forgives sin first and then does the obvious work. So here's where this applies. I believe too often we are not enough like these friends and we're too much like the Pharisees in the story. I think sometimes in our pursuit of our own faith, we give up too easily, too often. I think in our pursuit of trying to get people to Jesus or tell people about Jesus or communicate to people, you know, the, the gospel or portions of the gospel or anything, I think too often we give up too easily. We meet the first resistance and we're like, oh, I'm out. Or it gets really difficult and we're like, no, nah, that's an obstacle. I'm not going to push that hard to get through that. But these friends would not take no for an answer until they literally ripped the roof off this house. And also too often, I think... We don't want to admit this, but I think too often we are too much like the Pharisees. We see what God may want us to do, and we think, God would never want me to do that. Or we would see what God is doing in someone else, or how God is using someone else, or what God's called someone else to do. We would say, that's not real. Jesus would never act like that. Jesus would never tell them to do that. That doesn't sound right. Now, there are times where we discern those types of things, but more often than not, we're just judgmental of other people, okay? We have to admit that this is reality. We look at others and how God's working on them, and we say, well, he needs to work faster. He needs to do more. That person isn't trying hard enough, and we forget our own frailty, our own sin, our own shortcomings. Sometimes we're not enough like the friends, and we give up too easily in faith, 
And sometimes we're too much like the Pharisees in that we look down upon the methods that Jesus might use either in us and through us or with other people. So the encouragement is to not do that. So let's bring it home. First, I want to look at as a church, what this might mean for us. And I'll say off the top, when I say what I'm going to say here for just a minute, I'm actually looking for input from our church on how we can be like these friends more and more, okay? So as a church, here's what I want us to grab a hold of. I want us as a church to push through obstacles and excuses to get people to Jesus. As a church, I want us to not limit Jesus based on our methods or resources. So to say, well, we can't do that because it's too this, it's too much, or it's too expensive, or it's too off the wall, or we don't do things that way around here, okay? That's not what the friends did. Guess what? Nobody else had thought to get up on the roof, had they? No. Nobody else had tried that. That wasn't like a method that they had read up on. Oh, yeah, let's do that. They just had the idea and said, this is the only way we're getting him to Jesus. Let's go for it. Let's do it. So as a church, let me ask you this question. Who is it that we need to reach? Now, we're reaching people, and we're doing things, and we have outreach, and we partner with schools and organizations and and do certain events and stuff like that. But let me ask, what else can we do? Who is Jesus calling us to reach? What people do you think he would want us to reach? What groups does he want us to reach? Who in our community is underserved and overlooked that we can serve, that we can notice, that we can minister to? What are those needs in our community that no one else is paying attention to? No one else is meeting those needs. No one else is really noticing those. What, what are those things that we can be doing? I want you to be thinking about this. Um, and e- you can email me, Stephen at firstcenturykc.com. Hey, here, here's a thing we should be doing. Here's a thing that I think maybe we could do. Here's a, uh, a way that we can resource this part of our community, or we can resource this underserved, overlooked group in our community. And here's the thing. These things might be expensive, They might be different, Uh, they might be weird, they might be risky, they might be unconventional, and to that I say, good, bring it on. Again, all we're risking in trying new things is that it doesn't work. So, you know, what if the guys tried to rip off the thing and they couldn't get through and they tried and tried and tried and then the the meeting's over, Jesus is gone. Well, they gave all they could, they tried all they could, They, they didn't stop till it was way past time to stop. Okay, that's what I want us. I want us to have that tenacious attitude as a church. What can we be doing to meet even more needs? What can we be doing to meet maybe kind of a niche sort of need? What's that overlooked population of our city, of our community that that we can do something about? What roof is God calling our church to rip off? And then let's bring it down personally now. Let me ask you these two questions. I've already asked them, but let me ask them again. Who is that person that God is calling you to get to Jesus? And what are you willing to do to get them there? What are you willing to do to get them there? Let me give you some, and here's the thing. Get them there or even get them closer. Because maybe you're trying to drag a person on a mat by yourself. You don't have three other friends to carry him, get him on top, and rip the roof off. What can you do? What little things can you do to even get that person a step closer? Maybe it's mowing an elderly neighbor's yard who you know is not 
a faith-filled person. Maybe you can offer to rake their yard this fall when the, when the leaves start to fall. That, maybe that little act of kindness can warm their heart a little bit to you and then maybe ultimately to Jesus. It's a small thing, but maybe it gets them one step closer. Maybe you've got a new neighbor that lives near you that you haven't met yet. Maybe you want to just introduce yourself, start a relationship with them, start a dialogue with them, get to know them, and then, you know, work faith into those conversations, get them closer to Jesus. Maybe it's buying a single mom groceries. Maybe it's talking to your coworker about faith. Is that scary? Yeah. Is it risky? Maybe, but it's worth the effort. If you feel God is leading you to lead them to Jesus, Go for it. Rip the roof off. Do all you can to get them to or closer to Jesus. Maybe it's a big step. Maybe God's calling you to offer to pray for someone. They're, they're pouring out their heart and their life to you, and they're telling you how terrible and rotten things are. Don't just say, oh, that's too bad. Maybe God's going to tell you, pray for them. Offer them hope. Give them encouragement. Don't get down in the mud with them and say, oh, it's so sad. Let's cry together. No, empathize, sympathize, yes, but ultimately give them hope. Pray for them. If Jesus can heal a paralyzed man, he can heal their marriage or their relationships. He can, you know, heal their heart or he, whatever the issue is, offer to do that. It's a big step, but let's rip the roof off, okay? Maybe it's inviting someone to church. Get them closer to Jesus. Get them closer to the gospel. You can even invite them online. Just say, hey, watch with me uh, when we're back on Facebook or when we're on YouTube, hey, watch with me at 10 o'clock on Sunday. You won't be disappointed. And maybe it'll be just what they need to hear. What are you willing to do to get these people to Jesus? There are obstacles. Well, what if they reject me? Just keep loving them and keep serving them anyway, okay? What if they think I'm weird? Well, I'd rather them think you're weird than think you don't care. Right? Isn't that a fair statement? I'd rather somebody think I care too much than that I don't care at all. So take that risk. Maybe you'll get a weird response or a weird look or, uh, you know, shut the door in your face kind of thing. I'm not saying be weird. Okay, there's a difference between being weird and being seen as weird. Those are different things. But take that chance. You might say, what if this whole thing doesn't work? What if it never works? What if it never happens? You in this story, you're not Jesus. The result is not up to you. You're the friend of the paralyzed person. You're the friend of the person that needs to get to Jesus. The result is not up to you. Take that off pressure off yourself. Your job is to do all you can to, to take the roof off, rip the roof off, and get them closer to Jesus. So as a church, let's rip some roofs off. In your life, in your relationships, find that person or those people that you need and want to get to Jesus and rip the roof off until you get them closer and closer and closer to him. Let's get desperate like these friends were. I'll do anything to get them there. Let's get creative. I'll I'll figure out ways to get them there. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know how this is going to look, but let's just go. Let's go for it. Let's rip the roof off. Let nothing stop you as a church. Let's Let's let nothing stop us from getting people to Jesus because that will make all the difference. Let's pray. God, today, I I pray this over all of us and over our church, over every individual, over everyone listening or watching today. Maybe they're not a member of this church, 
But I pray that no matter who they are or where they are or how they're watching or listening, that they would take this to heart. God, give us a passion for people. Not just that we look at people and look right through them or look over them or think, oh, they're probably fine, or think, oh, I have more issues than they do. No, give us a passion for people. And God, give us a desperation to get people to Jesus. That's the true hope. Whatever surface issues or problems they have, maybe there's deeper issues and only Jesus can solve those problems. Give us this desperation to get people to Jesus. And also give us this determination like these friends had. I'm not taking no for an answer. I'm not going to let one obstacle stop me. I'm not going to let a speed bump stop me. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I am determined to get these people to Jesus. Maybe it's only one tiny step closer. Great. Now let's focus on the next tiny step. Maybe you get someone to Jesus and now they have life and hope in him and a relationship with him. Great. Who's the next person in line waiting to get to Jesus? Let's find out who these people are. Have a passion for them, have desperation to get them to Jesus, and have determination that we're going to do it no matter what. As a church, give us that. As individuals, give us that. Let us be like these amazing friends to do anything and everything to get people to Jesus. And it will change everything. So I thank you for that encouragement. Help us to walk in that this week. Help us to be looking for those people and those creative ways to get them to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.